Hello, everyone. It's G3, and today we are going to be talking about the interaction between politics and inflation and whether markets, policymakers, and politicians are aligned or not when it comes to managing and messaging around this topic. Joining me will be Mike Edwards, Weiss's deputy CIO and resident policy expert at the firm. Mike also knows quite a bit about politics, which, like it or not, has to be part of the conversation given the pain Americans are feeling at the pump and at the grocery store. So stick around for this one and check important disclosures at the end of the podcast, which, by the way, is still free. All we ask is that you take the time to rate the show in a spare moment. And with that, welcome. We are recording. Mike, very happy to have you here today to talk about this very pun intended hot issue of inflation. Let me just start things off by asking you a really, really basic question. Maybe you could even call it a stupid question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. I, I seriously doubt that. All right. Well, let me ask it and then you can be the judge. Practically speaking, is there anything our elected representatives can do about inflation? There are many things they can be seen to be doing about inflation. The number of things they can do that can actually be impactful unilaterally on a short timeline is very low. So the simple answer is not really. And when you say short timeline, what do you mean by that? An election cycle. So call it as a generalization, I would say in two years, if we're going to reflect on the current circumstance, I would say that probably right around Thanksgiving of last year is when we pivoted from an inflation issue to an inflation problem. That's concurrent with Powell dropping the transitory language for market participants. I think the, the felt experience in the American populace was, oh, supply chain issues are causing some concerns to, wow, everything is significantly more expensive, which was a first quarter of this year problem. And so then it's not just the kind of two-year election cycle. It's really from, let's call it February to November. So on a nine-month timeline, is there much of anything that the Biden administration can unilaterally do? Not really, apart from maybe we'll talk about some trade issues, but even those are not going to have a, a real-time effect such that you can solve a problem as perceived in, let's call it a six-month time horizon. Well, then let's talk about the posture of the Biden administration and its approach to dealing with the Fed, which I gather can, in fact, in your view, do something about inflation, even on a shorter timeline. Absolutely. That's an important distinction between elected politicians and, and policymakers, or in this case, between some of the fiscal impulses and in some cases, regulatory and jawboning impulses and the Fed itself. I think that Biden went out of his way as explicitly as I think a president of the United States has done on record in history to not just bless, but encourage the Fed to raise rates. So effectively go solve the inflation problem at the expense of asset prices, which is it's not a big surprise in terms of priorities or a value hierarchy for the administration, but it was very explicit. And having done that, you've now seen a very low linkage between and part of that is because you've had a bunch of confirmations come up and that's slightly politicized as well. But you've seen a very clear desire to not politicize the Fed from the Biden administration over the past few months. So it's a pretty big change from six, seven months ago to today. 
It isn't saying, no, 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 we're going to let the Fed absolutely positively fight inflation and use all of its tools, even if the Biden administration wants to portray that as being hands off. It's inherently political, though, isn't it? It it is, but it's political in the sense that I think the Fed and let's just take him. Jay Powell is going to be optimizing for his legacy over a long timeline. The electeds are going to operate under shorter cycles. So what I want to give our listeners a framework for is that and in this case, we'll say the Biden administration, but as a generalization, politicians want to be, in trader speak, we would say long a call. They want to get credit for actions that solve a problem. In this case, if, if the Fed gets inflation under control, then the Biden administration wants to either take credit for that or take credit for a whole bunch of other things they tried to do that they can say in hindsight were, helped solve the problem. They might have been coincidental, not causal, but they want to take credit for that, whereas – if this thing spirals out of control, then it's, oh, I mean, the narrative might be, oh, the Fed was behind the curve. And that's not our job. It's the Fed's job. So it really is, I think, about distancing oneself from failure while setting up to claim credit for victory on this point. And maybe the language of failure and victory is a little extreme here. But I think claiming credit while distancing oneself from blame is, is the right way to think about this. And in terms of the framing of that, is that why the Biden administration wants to be seen as being very active yes. in doing things to try and combat inflation. Exactly. And I think the right way to think about all these headlines you're going to see, I mean, it just happens on the day that we're recording this, that you had Janet Yellen on the tape talking about the SPR helping solve gas prices, which is complete nonsense. And we can unpack that in a minute. All of these sorts of headlines and, and attempts at things are what I would call performative. They're making an attempt to be seen to be doing things because that's empathic with Americans' like felt kitchen table experience here, even though those things are not – in some cases, they're even <laughs> making matters worse and distorting markets. But in general – these sorts of actions that are being taken, and there's a lot of focus on you know gas taxes and SPR and that sort of experience, but even other supply chain issues, it's just unfortunately it is politicized without being able to be solved by the actions of, in this case, the Biden administration. So the Biden administration is endeavoring to get itself some good headlines to suggest that it is doing everything that it can you mentioned the SPR and how absurd it is to actually say that that is going to do anything about energy prices. Can you talk with a little bit more detail about why that is, in fact, a completely ineffective policy? It's basically just pulling forward demand or pushing out, depending on the direction. The, every barrel that is released, quote unquote, from the SPR is going to have to be replenished later. So... The underlying assumption of, oh, we'll release barrels from the SPR and it'll solve the problem. There are two problems with it. One is that the barrels that are released today have to be replenished later. And that is based on the assumption or the action is based on the assumption that prices will be lower in the future than they are today. Markets don't work that way. Markets immediately adjust to the known fact that those barrels are going to be replaced. And thus, it doesn't really change the long-term equilibrium or disequilibrium. The second point, and you know, this is the oft-quoted point about inflation in general, is the solution to high prices is high prices. 
not that it necessarily works in suppressing prices, but I think it's also the false assumption that by lowering gas prices today, we'll have some kind of lasting effect. The only thing it really does is reinforce the message to the CapEx decision makers, which are global producers of energy, of, well, in this case, oil and gas, that there's no point in adding capacity because we're just going to keep fighting price or that they're dealing with a, I'll try to politely say, a not particularly trustworthy counterparty from a policy standpoint in terms of the having a stable price environment in which to increase production or CapEx today. And so that mantra of high prices solving high prices gets broken when you try to intervene in the, the very work that the high prices are meant to be doing. I would add that the solution to high prices is high prices doesn't seem to work very well when we're talking about food and the basic necessities of life. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So I think there's, and let's separate that out when we talk about the basic necessities, because in let's say food and other things, you can trade down. You can only trade down so much in gas, right? I mean, I don't know that many people who decide if you have a car that takes premium, it takes premium. And if it takes regular unleaded, it takes, but you can't trade down, right? The learned experience over the last kind of weeks and months, which is maybe too short of a timeline to draw dramatic conclusions from, but we're not seeing a lot of demand destruction because of a 30, 40, 50 cent move higher in gas. People are driving roughly the same amount. Jet fuel is a separate issue. And there are a number of other important nuances within discussions about demand destruction in oil, but it's not very evident. But there's no trade down effect here, and we're not getting demand destruction at these levels. So it's not changing the picture. And that, just to come back to the prior point before going to food, that's yet another reason why, whether it's Janet Yellen today, who I'll remind our listeners is in a very p- different position as Treasury Secretary, part of the cabinet, and not as a Fed official anymore. Why her saying things about the SPR is is just silly. The food point and where you are seeing evidence of people trading down, it's a separate issue. But I think we are starting to see that impact. That really does motivate voters. I think it motivates perceptions of security of the family. It's very, very regressive because food prices are some of the biggest contributors to measured inflation right now. And not much that the Biden administration could do about the planting season in the Ukraine, right? Absolutely. I mean, that is one. Well, let's separate that point for a second. So planting season in the Ukraine is the U.S. doesn't import wheat from the Ukraine. We're self-sufficient. And by the way, should we say Ukraine or the Ukraine? I'm going with Ukraine. I think right. the Ukraine is Cold War antiquity. That's OK. No, no, let's, so let's are, do Ukraine. So so are you and I, Cold, Cold <laughs> War antiquity. So that's OK. But I think there's a difference between the U.S. concept of food security in the U.S. versus globally. And I, I don't want to minimize, which we've talked about on other episodes, that globally food security is a huge issue. And it's politically destabilizing at the regime level in places like Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Peru, etc. You're having very nationalistic responses to this in India banning wheat, in Indonesia banning palm oil. Exports. India banning wheat exports. Exports, exports, yes. sorry. <laughs> you can still eat wheat in India, I assure you. Everyone loves a good naan. But it's easy to forget, right, that the Arab Spring was ultimately about the price of a loaf of bread as much as it was about the regime. I mean, that, that was one of the major, if not the major cause of discontent at that time. And we're seeing... Some very similar 
waves forming, right, in emerging markets, particularly in the Southern Hemisphere. So I don't want to minimize that, but that's different from an American consumer trading down from chicken to packaged bologna or what have you, right? Those are two different things. However, the felt experience of the American consumer to higher food prices is something that the Biden administration can't do very much about. And the performative responses to that sort of thing are a lot of discussion about price gouging and antitrust, some of the waging a regulatory war against the meat packers and poultry producers and this sort of thing. And some of them are, in fact, supply related, but some horses left the barn already, protestations around things like this baby formula issue, which can you invoke the Defense Production Act to make baby formula? I suppose so, but who's to say there's not a regular market solution on the same timeline? I think that's a, actually a pretty good and very visible example to people of where, you know, that problem is going to be felt and then solved. It's just a credit question of who takes credit for it. Gotcha. And, you know, obviously, it's not just the president or federal politicians, it's the governors as well. Can you just talk about some of the things that they've done specifically around imposing tax relief on gas and the like? That's exactly where I was thinking as you were asking that is gas taxes, the big area, because there is a you know state level capabilities there. I think the you know, you're seeing the at the federal government level, there's a, a desire to put a bill on the floor in the House that will never pass to get votes on whether or not we should prohibit price gouging and cap gas prices and things like this. Again, we'll never pass. So it's performative in that in the broadest sense of just taking a vote, not even taking an action that is ineffective. Whereas governors, for example, Connecticut as providing gas tax relief states with surpluses like Maine are writing checks for food price relief to their citizens because so they're, they're running budget surpluses, which is a, a vestige of you know, some of the COVID fiscal situation and that sort of thing. So those things are definitely being done at the state level. They are not going to be done at the federal level. And I'm sure we'll get to this in more detail, but they're not getting done at the federal level now when the Democrats have complete control of House, Senate and the White House, which is assuredly not going to be the case in the coming quarters. Let's talk about how things heat up and all of the things that you and I know are going to be brought out and used as ways to activate the bases on both the left and the right, all with this backdrop of inflation being something that nobody likes. Let's talk about cultural war, hot button issues, right? Which you and I have discussed as things that are both utilized on the left and right. It just happens to be different issues. On the right, as you well know, you have... Harvard and Yale and Princeton educated Republican lawyers who have quite effectively, I think, garnered support from constituents who seemingly would have more in common economically with Democratic positions than Republican positions. But nevertheless, because inflation is now occurring and roaring under a Democratic administration, it would appear to me that it is a gift, a incredible gift for Republicans who can now blend the cultural war narrative with the inflation narrative. Have you ever seen a stronger hand for Republicans than you do right now? I wouldn't label it a gift. In the political ecosystem of the country, there are course corrections where one thing leans too far. That is a piece of the the same fiscal to monetary and perhaps monetary to fiscal handoff that we've been 
implicitly referencing. That being said, I'm going to call it the tailwinds here for Republicans as opposed to the just calling it a gift are incredibly strong. Like it is more or less inconceivable at this point that Republicans don't at least take the House. And I think consensus would be that they pretty easily retake the Senate. I'm not sure I would call that inconceivable, but it's more likely than not. And that's a lineup of, to your point, the typical midterm phenomenon, but then also having inflation as this almost universally felt negative that weighs against incumbents, plus more explicitly running on other topics that are going to inflame passions in different ways. But to the extent that that's a distraction, it just makes the inflation force all the more powerful. Let's talk about one of those other things. Let's talk about China and American politics. If the Biden administration tries to very carefully roll back some tariffs and engage in some good faith gestures with the Chinese for the purpose of trying to tap down the, the pressure emanating from supply chain issues and the like, how are Republicans going to treat that? Honestly, I don't think it's Republicans or Democrats even on China. It's one of the, as we've talked about, it's one of the areas in which there's just bipartisan hawkishness. I happen to be, it was actually pretty amazing. It was at a discussion yesterday that featured the almost 99-year-old Henry Kissinger on this very topic. And, and somebody said that, you know, any, anybody who makes warm gestures towards China is accused of being a quote-unquote pandogger. I'd never heard that term before. Maybe I wasn't listening enough, but I hadn't heard that term before inside the Beltway. But just to give you flavor, this question hits on one of the real pickles to me on the inflation question in particular, because at the very beginning of our time together right now, you asked, is there anything that they can do? And I sort of a qualified no. The one exception to that is trade, because putting tariffs in place, which goes back to the Trump era, and the sort of deglobalization impacts of those trade policies is certainly inflationary. You won't find anyone who disagrees with that statement. The relief from whether it's creating exemptions or a wholesale rollback of different pieces of that policy would be more or less immediate. And I think you could think about it in places like, which are both supply chain related and also energy related, places like solar panels. So if I were a policy advisor to the Biden administration and I was asked if I can do only one thing that I know I can do and I know will be impactful to prices that I can point to quickly, what would I do? And my answer would be create exemptions or roll back some of those tariffs. The problem with that and the reason it probably won't happen or if it does happen, even in a very quiet way, it probably won't happen until after the midterms. So effectively December is that is such a universal political requirement to be hard on China and to operate with sticks, not carrots. You can think about that as we've talked about, like even in the China-Russia relationship, I would posit that notwithstanding a whole bunch of other issues that have come up since then, but that at least on the Putin-Xi or the China-Russia axis, that China has dramatically outperformed relative to the global consensus, what people feared they would do relative to supporting Russia, right? Yes. And what they're getting for that is the absence of punishment. It is not anything positive. It is not, there's no attaboys. There's no thank you for quietly joining the, the coalition of the condemning or whatever you want to call it, right? And I'm not predicting that there will be, 
But I think that very point illustrates what I'm trying to say here, which is that even though the most effective tools would probably live on this axis, they are not arrows that are going to come out of the quiver anytime soon. Let's talk about one topic, though, that is going to be widely discussed as the election cycle heats up, and that is the Supreme Court's well-telegraphed decision to roll back Roe versus Wade. That obviously is a touch point in the cultural wars used on the Democratic side. Can that preempt this election being about inflation and nothing but inflation or mostly about inflation? No. In fact, I think it has the opposite effect. I have absolutely no idea. I'm not even trying to conjecture. But if I were to ex post talk about where did that leak come from? And, you know, the whole discussion of how did that decision leak? And was it a liberal or a conservative or whatever? I would maybe, I mean, I'm quite sure this is controversial. I would go so far as to say that the leak of the decision in the broader context of electoral politics helps the Republicans more than the Democrats in the following way. The inflation impact is universally felt apart from a very small handful of CEOs in Houston. You're not going to find anybody who feels like they're being helped by the inflation picture. It's very simple. Inflation bad. But that's a low-grade, almost subconscious, conscious in some instant, but in terms of questions like is the economy on the right track or the wrong track and things like that, it's almost subconscious in terms of why there's a general feeling of things are bad. That's what we would call a kitchen table type of issue. And it is a universally felt kitchen table issue, meaning People who are impacted by that are going to vote against incumbents, and you would have to find some pretty big issues to overwhelm that in the other direction. So the candidate for the issue to overwhelm that in the other direction, which is what you bring up here with Roe, is not a universally felt. It's a divisive question. And for the most part, the people on, on either side of this question are staying in camps that they were already in. So at the margin, it might motivate turnout more. But it is not an issue where as people learn more about it, it's going to create or or have new experiences over the next six months or new data. It's going to create new outcomes. It's not. The difference is there might be the marginal Senate seat. Let's say New Hampshire, for example, that was previously was lean Republican or toss up and is now lean Democrat. I mean, there will be the marginal Senate seat that looks like that. But for the most part, as a phenomenon, it is a distraction and one in which – If I were a Republican strategist, I would say we should be perfectly happy to make this election about Roe v. Wade and the role of transgender folks in in college sports and anything like that, because that will distract from the issue that we are winning. Like the scoreboard is 99 to 1 on inflation. So let's not even talk about that and let's talk about something else. And I think – I know this sounds like deep strategic three-dimensional chess or whatever, but I assure you that this is actually pretty down the fairway for how strategists think about what issues to elevate versus not. I want to read you a quote recently from Jeff Bezos. He said, the administration tried hard to inject even more stimulus into an already overheated inflationary economy and only mansion save them from themselves. He's, of course, referring to Joe Manchin, the senator from West Virginia, and arguably the most powerful person on Capitol Hill these days. What's Bezos doing here, Mike? I want to separate this into what's the context and then what is Bezos himself doing? What may be motivating that? I think part of the context is the history of of how we got here, which is what he's referring to. And it's what we were talking about before about 
COVID spending and the, the, the fiscal impulse going, this is really litigating the past. And I think the reason I want to make this distinction is because the way that markets and politics view this question is very different. Okay. In politics, you are litigating the past. You guys screwed up and spent too much and you tried to spend even more and Manchin saved you from themselves. I'm paraphrasing what Bezos is basically saying here. Markets are not backward looking. Markets are forward looking. So markets want to see the inflation picture get less worse. And when that happens, things can change. Expectations are going to change and markets will move before the data moves and before the real economy moves. And the real economy will move before it's perceived by the voting population to move. So coming back to your original question, when we're talking about on what timeline politicians effectively can impact outcomes, it's not on a relevant timeline for exactly this reason is markets, which of course the Fed impacts and are forward looking are going to work faster. And this is part of what Bezos is getting at here, which is calling out the performative aspects here. And the blame game, because the other context for that quote was calling out, and I think it was all on Twitter, was calling out Biden for going after billionaires and talking about tax and effectively income redistribution as being part of the inflation discussion. And Bezos is trying to parse those issues to be separate issues, which in some ways they are and in some ways they aren't. But for Bezos to sort of call a spade a spade and say, we have to solve each of these problems, but let's not make a mess of it and muddy the waters. And this is obviously, as, as among other things, the owner of the Washington Post and uh, someone with a growing voice in the proverbial town square, which apparently Twitter is supposed to be. I'm sure Bezos thinks of it as a public service. He's clarifying what would otherwise be muddied waters. Is it in essence a tacit endorsement of Manchin's expected decision to run for president in 24? Tacit, maybe. Uh, and I do think that there's growing expectations on that front and there are growing expectations of it being a... Uh, a crowded field, but crowded on the presumption that despite that he says he will, that ultimately Biden won't run for reelection. And I don't have a comment on that necessarily. But when you have a perceived crowded field, everyone wants to you know, stake their claim early. I think at this point, what it really is, is Bezos trying to separate out the performative narrative, which is what I've been getting at over and over again from the reality of what needs to happen over the next several years. Right. So the distinction I made at a minute ago between litigating the past and preparing for the future. That's part of what this separation is doing is the solutions to today's inflation issues, including the regressive elements of it. Right. And this is the, this gets to the kind of tax question and that sort of thing. Those need to be forward looking and how we got here is context, but let's not relitigate it. As a clue as to who might be running for president on the democratic side, might we be able to take some insights from Democrats that kind of throw the Biden administration under the bus as it relates to inflation? I think it's maybe too early to tell at the risk of making predictions about the inflation picture. I think we can safely say that the picture a year from now is not going to be anything like the picture today. Better or worse? Much better. Okay. Much better. I hesitate to say that we've seen the peak CPI print, but we've seen the neighborhood of the peak CPI print. And some of that is just base effects and math and that sort of thing. But I do think that the, the run rate for both realized inflation, backward looking, and inflation expectations 
will be improved in a way that will be felt by the public on the other side of the midterms versus today. So by year end versus today, those will be very different. And thus, do I think that the 2024 presidential is going to be litigated on the basis of inflation claims today? Categorically, no, just not. I mean, that'll be an important piece of context. But look, I think what you're really getting at is, was Bezos right? Did Manchin save the Democrats from themselves? And he's been a deficit hawk and he was restrained because the inflation experience was like, in some ways, yes. I frankly, it's impossible to create the hypothetical here, but I don't think the outcomes of the midterms would be different if the Democrats had done build back better. Yeah. In fact, if anything, it might be worse, but it's pretty much the same. Lose the House decisively and you're going to lose the Senate maybe. For an elected, that's the same outcome. Where Manchin puts himself in the picture here, I've made this joke with you before, but I don't speak Manchinese. <laughs> like, I don't know what his underlying long-term goals are. I sort of assume that everybody who sees the word senator next to it, his name or before his name jumbles the letters a little bit and adds a P and, and then see in a D and sees president. There are very few people who make it to that level who don't want to take it a step up. So fair enough. But it doesn't mean that the single most important issue for the next two years is going to be the same sort of counterperformative behavior on inflation. Manchin to his credit, has been very consistent on this point, not just for the last year or three years or whatever, but for most of his time in D.C. All right. Well, you may not speak Manchinese, but you do speak Mandarin. And so I'm hoping to get you back onto the podcast soon because I want to go deeper, particularly on China as we head into the second half of the year. So thank you so much, Mike. Really appreciate it. Lots of great learnings here. I enjoyed it. Thanks, G3. All righty. This podcast should not be reproduced, copied, distributed, or published in whole or in part. This podcast is presented for informational purposes only. The views expressed herein are subject to change without notice. The information in this podcast is based on data regarding current market conditions from sources believed to be reliable. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as investment, legal, tax, or other advice and should not be viewed as a recommendation to purchase or sell any security or adopt any investment strategy. You should consult your own advisors regarding business, legal, tax, or other matters concerning investments. Please review related show notes for this podcast and visit www.gweiss.com to review related disclosures and learn more about Weiss.